I'm Jen Taylor Skinner, and this is The Electorate. On this episode, I have a conversation with Cynthia Che, the co-executive director of Chinese for Affirmative Action. Cynthia joins me to discuss the rising wave of discrimination and hostility directed towards Asian Americans. We discuss how elected officials often use Asian Americans as scapegoats for political gain. We also discuss the harms to the Asian American community caused by conservatives' use of xenophobic language, how Trump's own words and his policies have contributed to those harms. So without further ado, here is my conversation with Cynthia Che. Cynthia Che, welcome to the podcast. Thank you for having me. Appreciate it. So the president and several conservatives, they've repeatedly referred to the coronavirus as, you know, the Wuhan virus or the Chinese virus. And they've been corrected several times by, you know, activists and by journalists. And, you know, I remember on one of those occasions, the president shot back and said that, you know, he wasn't being a racist. But his referring to the virus in that way has that resulted in increased reports of hate crimes against Asian Americans? Has he contributed to that, do you think, in any way? Well, what we do know is that because of our reporting center through Stop API Hate, we have firsthand accounts of uh, really horrific experiences that Asian Americans have encountered. And their descriptions of what people have said to them and how they were made to feel. And, you know, we have significant numbers of descriptions that refer to this notion that, you know, the virus uh, is from China, um, the reference around the Chinese virus and Wuhan virus and parroting and invoking Trump when they are being verbally uh, and physically attacked. And so we do know that words matter and the ways in which Trump and other elected officials are using their platform to exploit a really challenging time for for so many of us to you know scapegoat uh, Asians, uh, scapegoat Chinese, and there's a conflation when you scapegoat or blame uh, the Chinese government or China with um, attacking. Chinese and Asian Americans here. I've I've actually seen reports where children children have even been attacked. I guess by other children, you know, before you know all the schools were were closed, and that's just really kind of heartbreaking to hear that. Do we have any data yet, or is it too early to have data to quantify the increase in hate crimes in relation to this? Well, uh, one thing I do want to make very clear is we describe these incidents as as hate incidents. Um, Many of them don't rise to the level of hate crimes, but I don't want to minimize the hundreds of accounts that we've received. Um, To date, we have about over 1,900 incidents coming from all over the country. And the descriptions of what's happening to individuals is, is really dehumanizing and traumatizing in the sense that people feel like they have a target on their back, that this is all happening while most of us have been sheltering in place, um, and that there is clear vitriol and animus towards Asian Americans um, and being bl- for being blamed for either bringing the coronavirus here or having the coronavirus at a time where we need to have empathy and you know we need to really fight this deadly infectious disease this has been a really harrowing time uh, for Asian Americans who feel like they're being targeted uh, just because of the way they look. And we are getting accounts of uh, vulnerable uh, members of our community, so children, 
Um, elderly uh, women are twice as likely uh, to report incidents um, that they've experienced. And for children, I think this is this is particularly disconcerting because, of course, schools close, you know, relatively early on. But even before that time, we were getting reports of um, from parents who said that their children were targeted. Several reports of being physically assaulted, taunted, and just the effects of it, the psychological psychological impact, um, the internalized racism, the depression, this desire not to be Asian, and feeling very, very hurt during a very confusing time for children in general. I was just curious if there were any reports or you notice any increases before the coronavirus. I mean, given the culture and the climate of this administration. Yes. So um, our organization had been monitoring the U.S.-China relations, you know, for several years now. And as it's been reported, um, you know, U.S.-China relations has uh, deteriorated markedly. And that has had devastating impacts on uh, Chinese here in the United States. And that's resulted in things like the Department of Justice and other governmental agencies targeting Chinese scientists and the private sector and accusing all Chinese who are here as uh, being potential national security threats. And we see this through hundreds of cases that we know about where Chinese scientists are being investigated, are being wrongfully prosecuted, and whose lives have been upended. And so this is something that we had been monitoring very closely with and working with individuals and their families who've been directly impacted by this. But we also saw this, you know, on the campaign trail. You know, he mentioned China quite a bit and not in a positive light. You know, I think I think a lot of the focus was on the relationship with Mexico, but he did mention China quite a bit. And it was clear that he may go in this direction. Yeah, no, it's it's very clear that the anti-China efforts and I would say it's a concerted, orchestrated campaign to paint China as the enemy and to certainly point the finger at China as a way to deflect from his own administration's mismanagement of this pandemic. But as you pointed out, you know, there has been a concerted effort to paint China as an economic threat, as a national security threat long before that. So, you know, you combine all those factors it's clear that China is being painted as the enemy. And I would say that this is not just the Republican Party. We certainly are seeing other elected officials do the same. Um, and I think that it's disconcerting that, you know, we have elected officials who are kind of playing into this, uh, this framework and this narrative. And it certainly is become a bipartisan effort, although we can see that the Republican Party has doubled down on this and is has clearly, you know, gone through great lengths to create talking points and to emphasize the fact that they need to keep pointing at China as um, the reasons why we're in the situation that we're in today. I am afraid to ask what other instances you're referring to outside of the Republican Party. Have there been Democrat elected officials who are, you know, playing this game? Yeah, I mean, I, I'm not afraid to say that um, 
in response to the Trump administration claiming that Biden um, was soft on China, Biden did a, a counter ad, basically playing into that and suggesting that um, he was not soft in China. <laughs> um, and you should really actually check out that ad because it, it does nothing to point the fact that this is xenophobic and that it is a distraction from the failures of this administration. But again, really just played into the hands. And I think we've had, you know, a number of, of folks weigh in that said, you know, Biden was trying to, un, you know, out Trump Trump, right, in terms of his anti-China framing of these issues. And so what I'm concerned about, I'm certainly not saying that the Republican and Democratic Party are one and the same, but I think that this is uh, clearly not just a GOP issue, which is why it's very important for us as a community to hold any elected official accountable when they use this time to exploit the situation uh, to gain political points. That's not something that we're going to accept. Yeah, no, and you shouldn't. And, you know, actually, now that you mentioned it, I do remember seeing that ad and it was a bit confusing to me because, first of all, it doesn't seem like a smart political move. And again, you know, I'm with you. I'm not equating Democrats to Republicans. I would never do that because right. it's, you know, apples and oranges, right? But I, I, I did see that and I wasn't really sure what what the purpose of that was. Right. And, you know, coming from you, I guess I guess it's kind of clear now. But the same thing isn't happening right now, for instance. And sorry, I'm going off on a bit of a tangent because I'm just thinking about it, thinking out loud. You know, with the whole Black Lives Matter protests that are happening across the country because of the murder of you know George Floyd, um, they aren't trying to out Trump Trump in that way. Right. So. Right. Yeah. I'm not really sure what's happening there. Right. I mean, is it just are they just kind of taking the Asian American community and the voting bloc for granted? Well, I certainly feel uh, as though there's been a general consensus from uh, Asian Americans that the Biden ad was alienating and missed an opportunity to counter the anti-China rhetoric with one that really speaks to the time that we're in and that the, the otherizing and scapegoating of Chinese Americans is a direct result. The backlash and the anti-Asian hate, the rise in anti-Asian hate is a direct result of this type of rhetoric. And so it was a missed opportunity, right? For, for their campaign to um, put out values around a more inclusive and multicultural democracy. And again, it was extremely disappointing and, you know, really, again, a missed opportunity to stand out. Yeah. But, you know, unfortunately, this isn't really new in America, right? I mean, there have been other patterns throughout history. There were internment camps, right? Right. And, you know, there was, you know, the, the focus during on Asian Americans during the bubonic plague. Well, as you pointed out, this this is not new. Um, this has been our experience since the first arrival of Asians to the United States. And of course, we all know about the Chinese Exclusion Act, you know, really the first immigration policy that excluded an entire ethnic group to the internment and different waves of whether it was public health to economic crises where Asians and immigrants have been scapegoated. So, this is in part why we uh, started uh, Stop API Hate, because we knew this was coming. 
And we wanted to document so we could understand the extent and magnitude. And because we know that the interpersonal violence and attacks will ultimately lead to policies that will ultimately harm our communities in the name of national security, in the name of public interest. And so these are the things that we as a community are organizing around. And we have lots of lessons to draw from, including what happened to parts of our community post 9-11. And so we have a national security apparatus, for example, that really is racial profiling us, surveilling us, um, and undermining our civil liberties and civil rights. And we just need to be prepared for that, as well as what's different now. We have the almost the mainstreaming and the normalization of white nationalist perspectives. It really ceases to amaze me the kind of rhetoric that is being put out there by elected officials as well as white nationalist leaders that are now being viewed as respectable, <laughs> that, um, that they're you know, speaking the truth of, of what's really harming our country. So I think that this type of extremism is something that we really need to organize and challenge, uh, organize ourselves and challenge because uh, we know that it'll have a lasting impact uh, in terms of our daily lives and in terms of undermining uh, what we know is our fragile democracy. So it, it is very disconcerting and we are seeing that as we're leading up to the national elections, that this type of rhetoric and framing and scapegoating has already led to policies such as the temporary ban on immigration. It's something that we all should be concerned about and not just Asian Americans. Yeah, I agree. And I remember after 9-11, the, the climate is very similar in a lot of ways, mm -hmm. right? Um, I'm curious about, you know, the Trump administration has been going in this direction, you know, before the coronavirus. And I know recently there was some policy where they were suspending visas of, you know, Chinese graduate students. Mm -hmm. What are some other recent policies that are kind of going in the same direction in relation to China and other Asian countries? Well, the main one that obviously happened right away um, was the immigration ban, the temporary immigration ban, right? And it was supposed to be in response to COVID-19. And that's had a devastating impact on our community, Asian Americans, because obviously we, um, our immigration system and family-based immigration system is uh, the cornerstone of um, how we keep our families together and how we reunited families. Um, so that that was a, a stunning blow to um, to our community. And as you mentioned, the the proposed legislation that would um, cancel visas for Chinese students, um, researchers, or graduate students and researchers, a lot of us are calling this the the new ex Chinese exclusion era. Because, of course, if you think about the Chinese Exclusion Act, there were a series of proposals that were put into place and orders, executive orders and policies that were proposed during this time that really um, led up to the final act of the Exclusion Act. And all of this articulation of threats that Chinese are posing 
were the reasons and the rationale for implementing sweeping policies that are having a devastating impact on our communities. So we're expecting a suite of policies that will have that effect of the Chinese exclusion era and ultimately the Chinese Exclusion Act. So um, this, again, I think has been in the works for quite some time. And of course, using this emergency crisis that we're, uh, we're undergoing now is, uh, is being exploited to advocate for that. You know, how do we begin to address or, you know, curb even this current wave of anti-Asian hostility? And also, do you think that the current activism around Black Lives Matter is a good opportunity, you know, to build a broader coalition with people of color against this kind of hatred? Well, um, I think in response to the rise in anti-Asian hate and xenophobia, um, I did want to really emphasize the fact that we have to have a multi-pronged approach in addressing it. So obviously we need to condemn the racist rhetoric. We need to hold our government accountable in terms of enforcing civil rights statutes and, um, and our rights. Um, but I think most importantly, what I wanted to emphasize is that as a community, we do have to come together and think about community safety and justice especially in the context of what's happening now with regard to the criminal justice system and and the Black Lives Movement, we really have to look at ways in which we can address this issue with understanding that we have to address these root causes around underlying racism and discrimination. Uh, This is the same system that uh, continues to divide us as a country. And an important element of that is to address anti-Black racism within our community and across communities. And so we do see this as a pivotal moment for our community in terms of how we organize ourselves, but also in solidarity you know, with other communities have, who have been disproportionately impacted by this pandemic, as well as uh, around racism in this country. Right. I agree with you. And this may be a bigger question than either you or I can can address, but I'm just curious as to, you know, given that we keep seeing the same patterns in the way that America deals with the Asian American community and with the black community, you know, like we talked about 9-11 and we talked about the internment camps. Is there something deeper that you think culturally that we we need to address to avoid this pattern? I guess racism. <laughs> well, yeah. I mean, so I, I'm somebody that that lived through the Los Angeles civil unrest you know, um, 28 years ago and what, and the, and the rebuilding efforts. And what I know now that I didn't realize before is that we have to think about not rebuilding the same systems, but really think about how the current systems are maintaining the status quo and will continue to undermine our democracy. You know, this is a big question before us as a society. It's gonna require imagination, innovation. We can't expect to tinker around systemic change and expect different outcomes. 
Right. I completely agree with you. Um, yeah. And I and I, I've heard that from a number of different people that, you know, if things go in the right direction in November, this could really be a watershed moment for a lot of different areas in the country. So we, we will see. Yeah, it is a consequential election for, for sure. And I would say that no matter who's in office, we need to continue to build power within our community so that we can hold whoever is in office accountable. Exactly. Mm-hmm. Cynthia Chait, thank you so much for joining me. Thank you for all of your work on this. Thank you. I really, really appreciate the opportunity to be in dialogue with you. Thank you for listening. The Electorate is independently created and produced by me, Jen Taylor Skinner. And of course, I'm the host. But I also do all of the editing, the audio, and the graphics. You name it, it's on my plate. So if you enjoyed this episode of The Electorate, please help The Electorate grow by subscribing just hit the subscribe button on whatever app you use to listen to podcasts. Also leave a review for The Electorate on iTunes. Lastly, one final way to help The Electorate is by following The Electorate on social media. That's at Electorate on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter. Thanks again for listening. And until next time, keep up the good fight.